Good evening and welcome to this episode of The Mary Trump Show. I am so excited to have with me as my guest today, Tim O'Brien, journalist, author of The Revelatory Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald, and executive editor and columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. Tim, hi. It's so good to have you. Hey, Mary. It's great to be live with you instead of digital. Right. Um, and as we were saying before the break, it's weird because I feel like I've known you for a really long time uh, because of your work, obviously. And uh, just, you know, you have a perspective on uh, one of the things we're going to talk about that very, very, very few people have. And that's strangely unusual Um because I think you and I would would both have thought that Donald's a pretty transparent person. He's exactly what he appears to be. And yet, here we are. Here we are, because people just routinely discount how damaging and destructive he can be. And yeah. and he, you know, and he creates his own narrative. And he, well, he creates his own narrative, but I think a lot of times other people created for him and he just kind of jumps in as it, as it, serves his purposes. But one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, because, listen, I think we we know how dangerous it would be to pretend that Donald's not a problem anymore, um, that if we just ignore him, he'll go away. I think that's a terrible mistake. But um, I'm, I'm really sick of talking about him. Although, again, it's necessary. But, but we, what, must. we must. We <laughs> must. But yeah. I, I think what's becoming even more important, especially as we see these hearings unfold, is to talk about his enablers and the people who use him for their own ends and the people he uses. Because I have to be honest with you, uh, one of the, the things that most shocked me was the extent to which Donald, and just I want to back up for a second. You actually have a much better sense of this than I do because I didn't really start paying attention to Donald in the way one needed to until 2016. You know, before that, he was just sort of my estranged uncle. Um, you know, so I your tried, estranged uncle who tried to rip off your inheritance. Yeah, well, there's that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I found that out eventually. But seriously, you know, he was he was he was Donald, and I didn't really want to pay attention to anything else uh, until it became utterly necessary. But you've had your fingers on the pulse of this much longer than I have. The real concern is the people he finds shockingly who are even weaker than he is. How do we make sense of that? Well, because I think he has this, you know, he is not a sophisticated man. He, he's an ignorant man, but he has this reptilian sensibility about other people's vulnerabilities and the kind of people <clears throat> that come into his orbit. And I think either identify through him because they have a weak sense of themselves. They overestimate who he is and they feel like they're in the sort of, you know, buzzy orbit of the sun God. And then there's another group of people who see them as they see him as 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 their useful idiot, someone who they they think they can manipulate or use to further their financial or political or social ends. And as you well know, he grew up watching his father do this. And I first got exposed to to to, to Donald in the early '90s. I was a research assistant on, on the first kind of definitive investigative biography of Trump 
uh, by Wayne Barrett, the great Village Voice investigative reporter. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I grew up in the Midwest, didn't really know. I was aware of Donald Trump in the headlines, but I never looked at him closely as a businessman. And then I went on this deep dive as Wayne's research assistant in the early 90s. I did a book about gambling in the mid-2000s. I interviewed him for that. <clears throat> and then I was at the New York Times in the early 2000s and covered him for the paper, wrote Trump Nation. He sued me for that book, and he lost. And over the course, I would say, you know, and then, and then he runs for president. In 2015, I begin covering him again. So he's like the ghost of Christmas past. You know, I like yeah. the, I can hear the chains up in the attic. And What did you do to that, be honest like this? I just, I think, I don't know. I just, it, it something happened in the, it, it must be karma. But the, um, the constant over all those years, say from the early 90s to 2022, is that he has always been surrounded by these two populations of people you just spoke about. And, and I think he learned at his father's knees that, that, that you could get lawyers <clears throat> and fixers and other political operatives who could teach you how to weaponize the legal system and weaponize politics in your own financial favor. And then there would always be this group of hangers on that would be willing to do duty de- dirty deeds for you. I don't think what anyone ever thought that model would get transported right into the Oval Office and then and then be used to essentially stage a coup. And and here we are. I want to ask you something because um it's it's important uh for people to um understand how strange this all is uh in terms of where we are uh the fact that things are worse than they've ever been in some ways um but and dangerous and dangerous but are you surprised by any of it are you surprised by anything that has unfolded because because of him or anything he's done um i'm never surprised by him frankly i think he has an immense capacity um, for tragic, comic, destructive, grotesque behavior, um, I am I am surprised by the willingness of people who can see right in front of him, in front of themselves, what he's doing. Uh, the entire GOP, um, major institutions, outside of political institutions, law enforcement. Um, uh, uh, business institutions, academic institutions, and and they essentially tell themselves lies and delude themselves. Um, I think in the belief that he might go away, or he won't be as bad, or that he can be channeled to to, to get their own goals uh, enabled and realized. And time and time again, he takes advantage of all of them, each and every single one of them. And I think, you know, the, the lesson of Donald Trump's ascent into the White House, you know, people shake their head and they say, well, how could this have happened? This is just dumbfounding. But he's an outcome. He's actually a symptom of, of um, I think, white nationalism and, and um, this lurch into um, propaganda and, and sensationalism. And, and, and cultural division, racial division, as a substitute for policy, as a way to gain power. I think the Republican Party learned decades ago that this was an effective path to power. They actually didn't need to preach policy. Mm-hmm. They just preached fear of the other. 
yeah. they kept finding different vessels who could inhabit that message. And, they, and that sort of reached at the you know, apotheosis in Donald. Mm-hmm. And and the real danger to me isn't just that he may return to the White House. And so I think Trumpism, if we're defining Trumpism as as <clears throat> white nationalism wedded to this propagandic fever, um, isn't going away. It, Ron DeSantis offers a version of it, Josh Hawley, Ted yep. Cruz, and it happens a bigger part of the Republican Party than when Donald first ascended. And I think that we're going to be living with that for a long time, whether or not he becomes president. And yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. And you've been writing a lot recently about what's happening around him. Uh, and that is, that's really where I, I want us to focus mostly today, because one of the things that's, that has me worried about these hearings, although I'm less worried about it as the hearings go on, but still, uh, is that Donald is going to be made the bad guy, which of course he is. Um, but is going to be held accountable uh, in lieu of everybody else, as if it were only him, if it were only his behavior and his divisiveness and his cruelty and his crimes, uh, and and have the entire Republican Party allowed to uh, just get pretend that they're fine, they're normal, um, they're, now that they've gotten rid of Donald, it's just business as usual. And I want to tease out a little bit those uh, two groups you talked about, uh, because I agree with you. Nothing Donald has done is surprising. Um, I should say three groups. We have the, the, we talked earlier, the users and the people he uses. And in the middle, the people who continue to give him the benefit of the doubt. And it, it that is mind-blowing to me when you and I have been saying for at least two years, well, you've been saying it longer than I have, uh, and other people as well, there is no bottom. It, it will only get worse. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, I, I credit a lot of why we're here with people's inability or unwillingness to face what's right in front of them. One, how bad he is, but two, how fragile democracy is and how extreme the Republican Party is. You know, we have a lot of existential threats facing us right now, climate change, a public health crisis, and a political crisis. And I think one common thread <clears throat> that binds all, all these things, and I think, you know, you're, you're far more, I think, sophisticated and steeped in, in psychology and human behavior than I. Um, but I think, I think people put reality in these little boxes that they tuck in the back of their head and don't open when the threat in front of them is so existential and threatening to actually call it for what it is would require them to take action. They're not prepared to take the steps we'd have to take to really deal with climate change. The steps we'd have to take to make sure if there's more public health crises going coming, that we've got a way to deal with them. And that if we are lurching towards fascism as embodied by Donald Trump, and now a, a larger wing of, of the Republican party, what, what are we going to do about that? And, 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 you know, when you identify this middle group, it's very interesting because I would, I would put law enforcement squarely right there that the, you know, the, the hesitation that until recently appeared to, to define the justice department's um, actions towards Donald um, after months and months of first <clears throat> news reporting 
that laid out what happened before, during, and after January 6th. And, and now those you know, incredibly important January 6th hearings themselves that have laid out a, 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 a pattern of, of criminality and intention on Donald Trump's part Yet, yet there's this kind of twiddling of the fingers. Well, you know, maybe he did break the law, maybe he didn't know. When the real issue is, the real hurdle isn't defining whether he's a criminal. He broke the law and he tried to stage a coup. The hurdle is, can you convince a jury of that in a courtroom? And are you willing to sort of have the Justice Department go after the executive branch when it never has in history before? Those are moral and strategic choices. Those are not legal ones. We already know what the legal choice is. Yeah. And even so, the law enforcement officials are hesitant to take it. And he knows how to exploit that. And 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 I think that, you know, right now, the people that are around the January 6th <clears throat> event, law enforcement legislators and the people that are investigating, um, the legislators have finally hunkered down. I hope law enforcement does, because if Trump is not held accountable and the people around him are not held accountable, we are a deeply broken country and maybe irretrievably broken. And the fact that for, what, a year and a half now, which is astonishing, Donald has been free to continue spreading his lies um, about the November election, about the insurrection, and we have 147 sitting members of Congress who are seditionists, in my view, still sitting in their seats of power, um, blocking, they're not making legislation, they're blocking legislation um, crafted by the Democrats. And still, uh, I think Josh Hawley is the worst, uh, most recent example of the dangers of that. Um, so... And he's a trained lawyer. Ted Cruz has a law degree. Ron DeSantis has a law degree. And all of them are embracing lawlessness. That's right. And they're doing it with the knowledge of how best to undermine it. And, and that's, I think, the scary part. And you've, you, you wrote about this recently, that it's not just about these individuals. It's about our institutions and the way that but if I can take a step back, I would say one of the good things, I guess, we learned during the Trump administration is just how fragile our institutions are so we can take steps to shore them up. Um, so, you know, that hopefully we've learned that, no, we can't depend on tradition and norms and human decency anymore. We need to codify everything. But on the other hand, uh, we still have people who are willing as soon as they get a chance to find the um, the weaknesses in the joints of those same institutions, and that's that's really what scares me. And and you know, in that context, Mary, January sixth is a warm up act. Yes. It's it, you know it's it is the crew around Donald figuring out where the soft points in the system are and how far they can use those soft points to break the entire structure, whether it's pressuring the vice president not to certify a result or, or creating false um, slates of electors to repay, replace those who were duly elected or to file scores of bogus lawsuits against uh, um, various state legislatures and, and secretaries of states about illegal vote counts or, or against companies that tabulated the vote. 
um, or to simply propagate the big lie uh, through a media alliance with Fox News to delude a huge portion of the American population into believing something occurred that didn't occur, that, that, that the election was stolen from Donald. And, and I think we know now that if he gets into the White House again, that they've now had practice of this, and they're not going to be put off by civil servants who might stand in the way of this stuff. They'll just fire all of them. Yeah. Um, what is uh, it the, called? The Schedule F is the, <clears throat> yeah, is the game F. plan? Yeah. And, you know, it's, and, the, and the idea now that's been institutionalized in a number of states that local legislator, legislat- legislators in Republican-controlled state legislatures uh, can review an election result and sort of decide willy-nilly whether or not they think it, it meets the, the sniff test, their own sniff test. That, that, that is the end of, of democracy, if a legislature can just say they don't believe in the results of a vote. And that's a microcosmic manifestation at all these little state levels of, of what, what that crew tried to do nationally after the 2020 election. Yeah, and just you know, just to illustrate how how deep the rock goes, uh, or how far ranging it is, the Supreme Court is going to uh, take up the Moore v. Harper case, which will um, basically um, set in stone, make constitutional the kinds of behavior you're talking about, and that is the end. I mean, luckily. In 2022, we aren't going to be faced with the dozens of potentially dozens of uh, secretaries of state or attorneys general who are running on the big lie, who are running to reinstall Donald or whatever. Um, and more V. Harper hasn't been settled yet, but it's not, um, if anything, it should just increase people's urgency about what happens in 2022. And, and Tim, I have to be honest, I think that one of, one of the things that's happening now, uh, or at least appears to be happening is that people like DeSantis are positioning themselves in contradistinction to Donald as an attempt, kind of like Yunkin did in Virginia, uh, as an attempt to kind of make himself seem like a better alternative, even though, you know, Ron DeSantis is a full-blown fascist and what he's doing in Florida is horrific. But DeSantis potentially uh, would be more dangerous, I think, if he got to the Oval Office. The only thing that I have any hope about is the man has no charisma. Well, and he, I don't think he's a great campaigner, you know, and it just, it's, life is different when you have to actually get into a national campaign. Um and and make eye contact with people, which Frank, which Ron DeSantis can't do, and 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 you know he has some oddities that may or may not haunt him on the campaign trail. We don't know. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. I think if he was paired with Christy Nome or Nikki Haley, that would be a pretty potent ticket. I think for you know for Republican voters in this day and age. Um, the other thing about all this, I was thinking about this earlier. You know, we're sort of talking about what's been revealed, you know, in, in, the, in the Trump era. And, you know, one of the, you know, Trump has he tore off this Band-Aid around myths that we've told ourselves about racial tolerance and social justice and economic progress in the United States. And 
And there's been pools of these kinds of people in the U.S. for generations. Um, they just didn't find something to coalesce around until they were, I think, found one another on social media and found a messenger in Donald Trump who said it's okay to say the N word. You don't have to. Yeah. You don't have to bury that anymore. And it's okay yeah. to say that we shouldn't let black and brown and yellow people come into the United States. And that. And that you know the real issue is immigration, not um, uh, automation, and 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 all these various you know false narratives of what was the cause of economic and social problems, and and you know the only virtue in that <clears throat> to me is it's forcing us to stand up in opposition to it, not to just sit back and sit by the pool and have a lemonade. Yeah, this is bad. But they actually figure out what we're going to do if this is going to stop, because it it has to stop. Um, you know, the, the the amount of decay in, in in trust and in the public dialogue and in our institutions, it's really at the breaking point. And a lot of that, and I'm I'm sure you are aware, and and uh, you know. Um, it just unfortunately seem still seems to be the case that a lot of people in the mainstream media haven't gotten the memo yet that uh, the Republican Party is not your father's or grandfather's Republican Party. And that's another concern as well, because by um, equating the parties, by equating the Democratic base and the Republican base, uh, which I find deeply insulting because, you know, I'm part of the uh, Democratic base. People in the Republican base are white supremacist, fascist, and misogynist and racist and all that other stuff. So, like, there's no equivalent in the Democratic Party uh, that has certainly not any part of the Democratic Party that uh, has power. Um, so, you know, the other, the other issue is that then I, I'm... I'm still trying to process what's happening with this uh, David Jolly, Christine Todd Whitman, uh, and Andrew Yang fiasco. Alternative. Yes. Um, like that's between that and the way the media presents the parties as if they're equally bad. Um, who who does that help? <laughs> I don't think it helps Democrats. You know, I think I think. You know, I mean, I think the problem the Democrats have in this scenario is is that um, it's a tolerant party. That's not a problem. That's a virtue. But when you when you when you embrace multiple voices, it is harder to keep everybody on message. Yeah. And then and 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 the Republicans are are very good at getting in line and staying on message, and then being programmatic in the service of their goals. To their credit, you know, the Federal Society, Federalist Society began planning for a conservative sweep of the court system in you know, 1983 or so, and then patiently worked at that for yeah. year after year. Whether or not you agree with them ideologically from a programmatic strategic standpoint, they hunkered down and got the job done. Um, when the Dobbs decision gets overturned, you know, overturns Roe v. Wade, the Democrats are on the steps of the Capitol singing, God bless America. And and you Sorry, know kumbaya, <laughs> kumbaya kumbaya does not work. No. Like this this is this has got to be a classic political battle, and, and and that involves you know you can't fight fire with fire. You can't you 
The Democrats can't engage in propaganda and lies in the path to power because the Republicans do it so effectively. They can't embrace violence. But they have to find a way to get up close to voters who don't feel that they are present enough. And I think some of these third-party movements, I think, are trying to do that. The problem is, I don't think any third-party movement in the U.S. in the modern era right now can really get traction anyway, because the apparatus is really controlled everywhere by both the Republicans and the Democrats. So I think if you want change and you don't want the Republican Party to continue to get away with using lawlessness and and sensationalism to essentially defenestrate the federal government, which is what this is. That's where the Supreme Court is. That's why various um, factions in the Republican Party unite, is that ultimately what this is about is the government should just run the army and keep the borders safe and closed and then get out of everyone's way. Right. And, and however that happens, it's fine, even if it involves lying, because that's, that's a good result philosophically to those folks. And, and, and Democrats have to understand how to make a good argument for why government can be a positive force in people's lives, good for the economy, good for every individual, good for civic liberties. Um, and I don't, I don't think the Dems have done a good job messaging around that enough and campaigning on it. I, I agree. First of all, bonus points for using the word defenestrate. Great word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> totally appropriate in this context. I'm going to get more multi-syllabic words in this conversation before we're done. Please. I like <laughs> them. Um, so yes, the, 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 what I'm getting at though, is that by giving the Republican party a pass, for example, uh, the fact that, um, bills in the house passed to, um, protect, I can't even believe I'm, I have to say this to protect the right to access contraception without government interference, to protect same-sex marriage, to protect interracial marriage, to um, make sure that there are no Nazis in our army or law law enforcement, that all of those things that passed in the House. No, no. All of those things were passed with 100% of Democratic support. And depending on the issue, zero Republicans or a handful of Republicans. So again, that disadvantages the Democrats because it makes it seem like, you know, everybody's doing great stuff. Um, And then Republicans don't get called on their rhetoric. And, you know, it seems like these ridiculous, uh, quote unquote, um, woke issues. I hate that word. Woke means kind, basically. (laughs) Kind and open-minded. Um, so the but Demo- again, who turned who turned the term woke into a into um, you know a, a opprobrium? You know, turned it into a slag. You know, like they again, the Republicans took control right. of that word. Yes. No, but that, that's what I'm saying, and and I think yes. you, I agree. Republicans are expert at co opting language, uh, no doubt about it. But unfortunately, and the Democrats do this sometimes. So like, no, no Democrat ever should have conceded pro life ever. Um, but the media do too. It, it's pro-life versus anti-choice uh, versus pro-choice. When it should be pro-choice and anti-choice or whatever. So, um, and you hit on it earlier too. So we have the messaging issue. Uh, we have this uh, the, the way it's presented as um, the the Republicans are getting just as much accomplished in in Congress as as the Dems, which is not true. Uh, and then 
the language issue, uh, which the Republicans are just better at. And I want to connect that to what you said earlier, which is entirely, I think, one of the biggest problems we have. As the Republicans have become more monolithic and more narrow, uh, the Republicans, as you said, have had to become a bigger tent, which is harder. But don't you think part of that is because the Republicans have finally, it maybe it's not true yet, but in the next election cycle or two, it will be true that the Democrats don't need a majority anymore because they've rigged the system so wildly in their favor. Well, I mean, we know that's going on already um, uh, through gerrymandering and, and through, I think, you know, um, the kind of like parliamentary maneuvers that the Mitch McConnell's of the world engage in. And, 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 you know, the, the, the Congress is set up by virtue of the structure of the Senate and the house um, that essentially you can create strategic pluralities that exist at the legislative level, even though they're not a reflection of popular will. That's where we are right now. That's why you don't get gun legislation even though gun violence is a scourge. And, and, and I think this, this push to decentralize decision-making and lawmaking in the name of returning power to the state is, is really, again, about using the states as laboratories, I think, for an assault on democracy, actually. Yeah. Not, not, to, not, to make, you know, not to make people, quote-unquote, freer. Oh, absolutely not. And and that's another structural problem. I mean, we've known about it for a long time, but I don't think we've understood until the last five years just how grotesquely unfair uh, the filibuster is and the Electoral College is. Because it hadn't hit a crisis before we paid attention. I think, I think you and I might have been paying attention. I think there were people that saw this coming yeah. and warned about it. But, you know, People did not think about this with enough intensity and a sense of purpose until it was too late. And, and, and now we're living with it. I mean, I, I think we're in the, actually the early stages of, 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 a, of a complete, of complete upheaval on how American democracy and, and, and legislation work. And it's, uh, and I this don't is think a happy podcast. <laughs> It'll get happier. Just give it a couple <laughs> yeah. minutes. It's going to get happier. You and Just, I got on to right make everybody happy. And you know what, Tim, I was thinking about this. I don't even know why. Like, for example, a few days ago, I woke up at five o'clock in the morning wondering how it would unfold if they decided to indict Donald. <laughs> like, this is what we have to think about now. But um, I was thinking about the fact that uh, not only that when asked the question, will you concede the election if you lose? But the fact that it had the question was even asked in the first place, I think that, if nothing else, just shows us how far we've fallen. And if you're going to ask that question, if it's on your mind, why aren't you taking steps well before you ask that question to make sure he can't? Um, uh, uh, you know, we, the, the U.S. system was not prepared for somebody like Donald Trump. Um, a pathological liar who had no hesitation about using powerful institutions to achieve small self-serving goals. 
that essentially, essentially, as you well know, you know, you can understand almost everything Donald does through two lenses, either self-aggrandizement or self-preservation. It's very rarely any other two things. It's not complex. And, and if that's not in front of him, that's what animates him when he gets activated. The rest of the time, he's munching on a cheeseburger watching sports and doesn't read and doesn't care about anything else. And, 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 and I think he realized on the job, I don't think he knew coming into the White House that the presidency allowed the kind of latitude it does. Um, and, and, and he discovered that. And then when, and then after getting you know, impeached and, and voted out of office, he discovered it was also a way to fundraise and to make money. And again, he learned it on the job. And, and, and the really dark part of this whole tale is he had bad enough instincts and motives coming into the White House, and then he learned in the White House that the power of the presidency allowed him to be even worse and to be insulated from the consequences of his own actions. As you also know, that's one of the most astounding things about his entire life is he's had these concentric rings of insulation. For He was born into a privileged family, and so his father's wealth and influence protected him from, from the consequences of his actions when he was younger. And then he, and then he became the host of a reality TV show and he got the power of celebrity, which yeah. he always recognized. You know, you can grab them by the who, what's it, you know, yeah. they'll let you do that if you're a star. Yeah. And, and then the presidency and each one of these things, you know, prevented him from learning from, his own grotesque mistakes throughout his life. The rest of us have to do that if we want to mature and become adults. He's been seven years old. He has been a rich kid for his entire life. And and I would put it in this these terms. Uh, he's been institutionalized his entire life. Like when has this guy ever had to li- literally support himself? Never. Never. <clears throat> even um, even when he drove, you know, his 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 own business empire holdings. Yeah. Into bankruptcy, his father bailed him out. His siblings bailed him out. That's right. Um, the banks let him off the hook. Exactly. And you know, I Tim, I've wanted to ask you this question for a really long time. Um, one of the when I first started writing my first book, one of the things that kind of um, pulled me up and uh, really shocked me, because again, I'd, I'd never had to think about it in these terms was the patterns that persisted throughout his life. And we've we've talked about it, but... And those were patterns that sort of you recognized through the writing of the book? Yeah, because mm-hmm. I was looking at my family as, as a system um, and then looking at, at, you know, Donald's relationship with the media as a system and then his relationship with banks as a system and then with the Republican Party. So, and in every instance... There was always somebody there to enable him, use him. I, I mean, it help him avoid culpability. Yes, exa- accountability, exactly. And uh, you said about concentric, concentric circles, exactly. They've grown larger as the power in uh, that accrues to being in that particular circle grows larger as the reach grows larger, as the ability to get get away with things get grows larger. And that was probably the most dangerous thing about the first impeachment. Uh, I think the 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 ridiculous Senator Susan Collins 
said that, you know, of course he'll learn his lesson because it's really being impeached is really bad. Well, being impeached with no consequences, what the fuck does he care? It's just, it's and you don't just learn in, lessons if you don't think you have any lessons to learn. Exactly. And, so, and, so how do you ahead, make sorry. sense of that? Because I, I've identified the patterns. I still can't make sense of them though, because it's quite stunning. The through line um, of why why people and institutions acquiesce from Fred on down. I, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think there's different factors. Like we you we could probably sit around trading war stories together for hours on how each and you know why did. You know, w- w- you know, why did Fred defer to, to Donald so thoroughly and, and vilify your father yeah. and 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 terrorize his daughters and leave his wife isolated home alone? And, and out of that whole maelstrom, Donald emerges as the one he decides can be the vessel for his own dreams and, and sort of protects him financially because of it. And, and you know, and Roy Cohn recognizes yeah. there's something in this guy. And and then Steve Bannon and Roger Stone and um, you know I, I think all of those people have different views into their own needs and, and human frailty and they thought they could take advantage of them. You know the, the one time I really got worried about why reputable institutions and smart people sort of succumbed to him was the Mueller investigation because the the sort of tender footedness Mueller had around prospect going yeah. down a road that could lead to a prosecution and really presenting a, you know, a really airtight um, um, series of charges against him. Uh, and, 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 and I think looking at his finances, Mueller chose not, which is the main motivating force for him outside of his own ego and his unhinged behavior. You know, he's media attention and greed are huge things for him. And, and we still don't know the monetary reasons for why he embraced Putin, but they're financial. You know, it's not just that he's fascinated with dictators. He saw, he saw Putin as a cash register and that problem hasn't been solved. And Mueller just chose to, I'm going to let the U S attorney look at that. I'm not going to look at that because this is the presidency and sort of looking at, at, at Trump in terms of what's around him, what people presume where he comes from and what he's about, as opposed to what his actions really tell you. People just don't accept his actions at face value, and they're and they're they're just bald, undeniable indicators of who he is and what he does. Yeah, and that's a that's another thing that's mystifying. Anybody else who is a serial criminal make every crime they commit makes it worse and makes them uh, it makes it more urgent that we arrest them or whatever. And with Donald, it's like, oh, well, he did this terrible thing, but he did this other terrible thing. So we're going to forget about the first terrible thing. And it's just. just and there's just so wipes. many of them that, you know, there's thousands of them. So you forget right. the first 950 because thinking about the most recent 50 is intense enough. And right. and um, and I don't think I don't think traditional institutions know what to do with them. I don't think I think it's hard for the legacy media operating these sort of rules around, you know, counterbalance objective reporting. You know, it's easy for me because I'm a columnist. I can just say, I think this is what it is. And I think law enforcement giving him extra deference because he's the president when when he's clearly a dangerous and lawless operator. Um, it's just, it, 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 it's gone on too long. People have woken up too late. I think, you know, Liz Cheney is a great example of this. I think she's a model citizen right now. I, I think, yeah. you know, 
I don't agree with her on, on a lot of her policy positions, probably maybe all of them. Yeah. Um, but I think she's a great public servant and a really honorable mm-hmm. person. But I wish she had come to this eight years ago and, 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 and others like her in the party. Well, uh, listen, uh, I think when you are in it to achieve your own policy ends, clearly uh, the Repu- the almost the entirety of the Republican Party was will- willing to look the other way because they were getting their Muslim ban and they were getting uh, the um, the tax cuts for rich people and you know they were getting the Voting Rights Act essentially gutted and thrown away and et cetera et cetera. So I, I'm very grateful that uh, Representative Cheney, Representatives Cheney and Kinziger, uh, drew had a line that could be crossed. Um, but, you know, part of the problem is that it took way too long for his, uh, his behavior to get egregious enough for them. And that's what worries me about this incredibly fraught moment we're in. Um, you know, say, the, 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 oh, sorry. No, no. Uh, I was, I was just um, going to say, you can put it, uh, you can add, go where you were going to go. You can put it in the context of this, whatever you want to do. But I'm just thinking, let's say Donald, if Donald doesn't get held accountable, that's the worst thing that could happen. But if he does and it becomes only him and his work, you know, the Kraken who get uh, indicted or what have you, but the rest of the party gets off the hook, that's a lesson for the Tom Cottons and the Josh Hawley's and the Ted Cruz's and the Ron DeSantis's. And if they ever find anybody who's smart with charisma, we are in serious jeopardy. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I um, remember in like 2015 and 2016 talking with some friends and, you know, I think, I think it can be facile sometimes to, to compare our current situation to, to Nazism. But we also have to recognize that there are parallels. And, and Alan Bullock wrote this great biography of Hitler, I think entirely just on documents he got from, he was a British historian. And it was one of the first sort of authoritative biography of Hitler. And I remember reading that book and uh, there's a chapter in there about the 1933 election and, and Hitler's rise to power. And German industrialists didn't want socialists and communists to take over the workforce on their shop floors. So it was a very useful alliance for them to um, link up and empower these cartoonish brown shirts who basically made sure that, that the left kept, kept out of the shop room floor. And, and then they thought they could control that group's leader, Hitler, because they were all these cartoonish guys who liked to march. And the final line in that chapter, when, when, when Bullock is talking about that alliance, is that the industrialists and the German conservative elite were about to learn what it meant to ride the back of a tiger. And, and I, and I, and I quoted that to people in 2015 and 2016. I said, people are about to learn what it means to ride the back of a tiger. And, and, and it has played out in, you know, the, the Republicans and the conservatives and, and who, who saw Trump as, as a, as a tool for getting a, a, a tax cut and a conservative court thought it would end there. Yeah. Without damage, it's been proven wildly wrong. Yeah, it's like that cartoon, you know, voting for the leopard eating your face party because it, they tell it like it is, you know. <laughs> okay, okay, like if if that's 
that's, if you just want somebody to be straightforwardly telling you they're going to eat your face off and you think that's and while you're thing. singing kumbaya yeah exactly and we're getting back to kumbaya and i this is something that's driven me crazy and i i i make it a policy i mean i don't think i've done this 100% of the time because you know i'm human but i i rarely uh criticize the Democrats on policy because my, my answer to anybody who thinks I should is imagine where we would be right now if January 6th succeeded or, you know, by some horror Biden had lost or it had been so close that they were able to, uh, you know, pull a, a 2000 Bush v. Gore. Imagine. So is, and also what Biden inherited is insane. The, the, the horrors that he inherited and had to deal with and untangle. So no, I'm not, I am not going to uh, criticize the Dems on policy. However, because I believe, I, I know this has become a truism, but it's true. 2022 is the most significant election of our lifetime. If we lose, meaning the pro-democracy people, not just Democrats, but people who care about democracy. If we lose in 2022, I think it's over. I Because it will be, the obstacles to winning in 2024 will become potentially insurmountable. So I think it's fair to criticize the Democrats if we think they're not fighting hard enough. And I, I don't mean to sound simplistic, but I actually think that's people thought Donald was fighting for them, even though, of course, he wasn't. Democrats are like Democratic policies really are good for people. I think we just want obvious signs that they're doing the fighting, even if they don't and accomplish that, what they want to accomplish. To own and explain their successes. Yeah. You know, the, the GDP has grown faster under Democratic administrations than Republican administrations. Democratic management of the economy has been better for people than Republicans, but it is commonly believed among a lot of voters that Republicans are better stewards of the economy. Um, uh, and, and this is just in the data. That's not even ideologically, that's not an ideologically drawn observation. It's just, it's the fact pattern. Um but I think I think I think the Dems have a hard time have a hard time convincing people that effective, efficient, um, sophisticated governance is good for everybody when it's when it's orchestrated and used properly, and that and that um, in this era when a big part of the population has had to move out of industrial jobs and either can't inhabit service jobs or can't get trained to get there, um, people feel displaced. And neither party, I think, for a couple of decades now, has really provided good answers to the plight of those people. Working Americans who've been displaced. But I think the Democrats have tried to provide better answers. Um, the, the problem is you've got a distressed, a, a big swath of the population that's distressed. Another pop, part of the population that's you know, racist, and 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 the Republicans have figured out how to tell the both distressed populations that they're on their side. Yeah, I don't think we have the luxury of telling people how sophisticated approaches to government work, and we just don't. Um, I think. Well, we have to get people to the voting booth. We do, and I think that that um, I get. I think the most basic thing I want just 
just as a starting point, it's for Democrats to recognize their enemy and to understand that the Republican Party is not a party that you want to work with anymore. Even if it were possible, why would you want to work with these people who, as you know, just voted against giving health care to veterans who have cancer because there were burn pits where they were serving our country. Exactly. So um, I think part of it is just like distinguishing themselves. And then, like you said, keeping it really simple. There are charts that just show you how many jobs Democrats, Democratic presidents have, have created versus Republican presidents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I think you're absolutely right about that. You know, it is about just getting getting the news out there. Um, and, and engaging I, with voters where they live. Yes. Meeting people where they are is incredibly important. I have two questions for you. Uh, The first one is, um, what do you think is the best? We didn't actually really talk about the January 6th committee hearings that much, but Hopefully, hopefully you'll you'll join us for our live stream of the next one because I know there will be more, and it's actually a really cool way to watch. Uh, Much easier. Yeah, um, and you know we get to kind of comment in real time and analyze during and after, so um, it just kind of helps process it in, in in real time because, as you know, it's been pretty gobsmacking on occasion. Um, but the hearings aside, what do you think that is the best case scenario vis-a-vis Donald's um, relationship with the Republican Party and whether or not he's going to run, uh, I mean, the best case scenario for us, you know, for the us pro, pro-democracy people? Well, I mean, I think, I think, um, I think we've started to see the impact of the January 6th committee hearings on voters in addition to I think um, I think the, the Dobbs ruling and mm-hmm. and, the, and the guns ruling were big motivating factors for people realizing that their civil liberties and 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 reproductive rights were at risk in a way that they hadn't fully contemplated and and I think independents are turning away from 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 that part of the party Um there's just this wild card of what's happening with the economy and inflation. There's a good chance it could worsen it. We go into a recession that's just going to be bad for those occupying office right now. So I think, I think some of this isn't in people's control. So a best case scenario is that we don't go into a recession, that we come out of that recession, job growth continues, and the economy perks up again, and people focus on making sure their rights aren't getting stripped from them by this court and, and this party. Um, and and you know you I think I think that the the map in the Senate has gotten bluer. Yeah. Uh, and um, I think the 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 map in the House has gotten less red, but is still significantly plus red. And so I think I think the best case scenario is a divided Congress. I don't think I don't think the Democrats are going to retain control of Congress. Um, and I think the best case scenario is a divided Congress and a competitive. 2024 presidential election. And I think it could be competitive if the Democrats have a ticket that is appealing to enough people to create a plurality. And I don't know what that ticket is. I, you know, I, I don't yeah. know Biden's approval ratings. And Biden's a great public servant. He's an honest man. He's a good person. Um, but, you know, his leadership's been pell-mell. 
Well, I, I mean, if people are only focusing on inflation and high gas prices, I don't think anybody could overcome that. And um, it's true. given everything, I, I have very specific uh, feelings about that issue. Um, but I, I think it's a little too soon to talk about that. Uh, you know, we it, that is something that we need. It to, could really change. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, yeah. things could even change between now and November. It's not that far away, especially those of us who were still living in COVID time when a month feels like a day and a day can feel like a century. <laughs> but it's there. That's a lot of time. Um, but I this is not my last question. I have one more question. Um, do you think, though, that. Donald can can play a factor or can be a factor in 2022 um, because I think that's also potentially something that could work in our favor. Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think if, if the question is, is, is he a negative factor? You know, is he dead weight? Is he um, on certain tickets? I think absolutely. And I think we've already seen that in some races. Um you know, I certainly don't think he's a kingmaker. And I think the January 6th hearings have have really painted him nationally uh, for what he is in a really, in a, in a fully realized way. I think there's more work to be done, but there's no question that lots of people have understood that he's a lawless um, operator, a criminal, and, and a threat to democracy. Um, what we don't know yet is, are they going to take action around that? But I don't think he's, I don't, I think the Republicans now know that he's a drag on certain tickets. And DeSantis yeah. and Pence are sort of openly flaunting him. And, and there's some, and there's some, there's some funding moving away from him. It hasn't moved away from him on Moss, right. but, but there's definitely, you know, that's also a barometer of where the party is. Yeah. And I think the good news too is that, um, although the country is paying attention and, and, and reevaluating, uh, Donald's paying attention to January 6th, but it's not going to modify his behavior in any way. So I think it's going to actually like activate him. It's going to yep. enrage him, right? Yep. Because he's, yep. he's a toddler. Exactly. That's exactly what I meant. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing, uh, especially if, if he announces. So I told him, I'm sure he listens to me. <laughs> I told him I think he needs to uh, announce his run before the 2022 midterms because that way the election will be all about him. And he'd like that. <laughs> so he would. We'll and it would be bad for the party. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I think he would like that too at this point. Um, okay. So last question. I'd like to just kind of take a step back and 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 step away from the darkness because it is, you know, it's very trying and exhausting to be steeped in this all the time, even though, as you said, we can't turn away. Um, hopefully someday we can take a break, but not, not right now. However, we do need to, uh, we need to do, be doing other things. So I just was just curious, like what, what are you doing now to kind of, uh, decompress, de-stress anything, um, you're watching or any, well, I, I, well, I will sound, I will sound so boring, you know, but I love my family and, uh, I was my, family, my family's a refuge. And have you and met the Trump joy. family? That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm talking to the choir here and I'm preaching to the choir. <laughs> the, um, uh, you know, I, I love to read my most recent favorite book was a swim in the pond and the a swim in a pond in the rain by George Saunders, the oh. great short story writer. It's a beautiful, I think you should read it. It's a beautiful book on writing, oh, and cool. and he teaches a creative writing class at Syracuse University, and he's a lovely man. 
And that's a great book. Um, I love film. Um, uh, um, uh, I love narrative television. I would recommend a slightly old French TV show called Les Bureaux, The Bureau, mm-hmm. about French intelligence. Great series. Uh, my wife and I cook together. I love to garden. We like to oh. travel. I guess this is like I'm ticking off all the... And I've got three amazing children. Oh, and, nice. uh, and, and so I feel lucky, but I also feel like, you know, the beauty in my life is, is, is under threat in the era that we're in right now, too. Exactly. And, uh, you know, not to, not to bring everybody down again, but I, I think that it is true that it's an additional stressor um, because so much is at stake for our children's generation. You know, my daughter's 20. And uh, we, her life has basically been bracketed by September 11th because she was born a month after, and what's happening now. <laughs> so, what are what are what are your refuges? Um, I also read a lot. Um, I I've never had COVID, but I have COVID brain, so I have a lot of time focusing. So I just sort of uh, <laughs> I read um, murder mysteries. I've been rereading Josephine Tay. Because that's sort of my, it's like a vacation. It just feels like going home, honestly. Uh, and I'm trying to uh, just detox, get back in shape. You know, COVID has taken its toll on everybody. So um, hopefully I'm heading up to Cape Cod soon. I'll, I'll sound like a one percenter. I love the Peloton bike for COVID exercise. You know what? Bike in the basement. There's nothing wrong with... Uh, <laughs> Making use of what you have, I'm serious, because anything yeah. that anybody can do to kind of be get healthy in, in this uh in these dark times <laughs> is really <I> important. <laughs> but it's also you, nice to be on this show and talk oh, about life and issues with you. That's also a form of therapy. It's I have to be honest, I, I always look forward to this. And um, as I said at the beginning, it's really great to meet you, even though I feel like I've known you forever. <laughs> And hopefully uh, we can meet in person one of these days when you're back in the States. And thank you for your courage and and your sense of purpose. Well, I appreciate that. Honestly, I don't think what I did took any courage, but I appreciate that. Um, and uh, But sense of purpose, absolutely. Uh, so, And you're right there as well. So Tim O'Brien, it was such an honor and pleasure. And please stay safe and hopefully we will talk soon. You too, Mary. Thank you for having me. I want to thank my incredible guest, Tim O'Brien, journalist, author of Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald, and the executive editor and columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, It was seriously, I... I have been uh, following Tim's work for a very, very long time. And as I said at the outset, he's one of the few people who has uh, had access to Donald and therefore has unique insights into him. So uh, as you guys all know, it would be fantastic if we could pretend Donald didn't exist anymore, but he's still a major factor in what happens uh, to our country in the future. So it's always great to get... um, the the somebody's t- Tim's take in particular on how we're going to negotiate this and what we need to understand. Uh, so uh, thank you to all of you for being here. I just want to remind you that next Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, 
We will have our strategy sessions with the Nerd Adventures and special guests. We're going to be talking uh, at length about the Supreme Court decision uh, Dobbs, which overturned Roe v. Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which basically has rendered women in this country second-class citizens and has given states the power to uh, imprison them, essentially, and force them to give birth to children they can't have, can't afford, don't want, uh, or um, in some circumstances to fetuses that are not viable, which only serves to put the mother's life in danger. So it's an incredibly important conversation. I really hope you will join us. And of course, next Thursday, our usual show, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. You can find both of these at youtube.com slash Politicon. And while you're there, please subscribe uh, to the Politicon channel. It's free, so don't worry about that. And like the episode. Also, click that subscribe button because if you do, you will automatically be notified anytime a new video drops. And not just the episodes, but the shorter videos that I've started doing to help us uh, keep up with the insane uh, pace of news. You can also, of course, listen to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give the show a five-star review because it really does help people find the show. And we are trying to um, spread the word. And I think it's really important to amplify voices of uh, all of the Nerd Avengers and, and guests like Tim. So thank you again and always for being here. I will see you Tuesday. In the meantime, please stay safe and be kind.